All right, well, we started a, a new study last week um, that I've called Making Promises, which is really um, the, the intent of it is just to walk through the Old Testament and take what really is a historical slash theological approach, both and. So what that really means is that everything we look at in the Old Testament text, we want to see where is it coming from, what's the historical context that's going on around the passage that we're reading, and then also what is the theological thing. So what is God accomplishing with this particular uh, passage in the scriptures. That doesn't mean we'll cover every verse in the Old Testament, obviously not, um, but we will kind of get the, the big picture. We, so we want to keep our eyes on the big picture, but then we also want to dive into the history that's going on around the Old Testament so we can kind of better wrap our minds around what's, what's happening. And what I think this will do is first, it will familiarize ourselves with the world of the Old Testament. So we'll kind of be able to get a better picture of the place and the context that people like Abraham or King David or Solomon are in and the historical events that are taking place uh, around them. And so it'll be able to familiarize ourselves with the, the Old Testament world. And what I feel like that will do is allow us to get familiar. What, what it will do is point us toward four main uh, areas of study. So when, when it comes to Old Testament geography, there's really four areas that are really pertinent for us. Um, the first is going to be Mesopotamia, and we, we talked a little bit about this last week. This is just a review, but um, the first is going to be the Mesopotamian region, which um, I don't know if you can see on the map here. The Mesopotamian region, my pointer, is down here by the Persian Gulf. You see it? Say yes. I can't hear your heads rattle. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Mesopotamia here. Um, so then we have Syria and Lebanon and Canaan, the, which would be uh, Canaan or would be typically referred to as the promised land. Um, let me go back to my previous slide here. There we go. Mesopotamia, Egypt, which is uh, obviously most of you are going to know where the region of Egypt is. Palestine, also called Canaan or Israel, which is right here by the Mediterranean Sea. And then the Fertile Crescent. So when we look at that, uh, or if you're French, uh, the, the croissant. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't I've never heard anybody pronounce it that way, but there you go. Uh, so Fertile Crescent being a crescent-shaped uh, area obviously places near water in ancient uh, Near East is going to be very important, and so these four areas, ninety like percent of the Old Testament is going to take place somewhere in the green area. So we're going to be concerned with really all of those areas geographically as we go through it, and geography is going to play a huge role in um, in in really what we talk about. Um, now I hope what what my my real hope for all of us is, is that this begins to kind of remove a lot of the fear that we get when we study the Old Testament. I think part of at least my trepidations when I, when I read the Old Testament is, well, here's a bunch of names. I've never heard of these names before. That name seems awfully important, but I don't know why. Here's this place, and that seems like I should know what that means, and I don't know why. And so it, it sort of intimidates us and scares us from reading the Old Testament. But, uh, but really, once you understand the geography and once you understand a little bit of the history that's going on, it makes things a lot simpler to, th to think through and, and to understand when it comes to the Old Testament um, picture. Now, uh, last, just as a review from, from last week, remember we talked about Abraham 
he begins in Ur. We remember that. He's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And then he, he and his family, his father, Terah, and his brother, and his, his nephew, and his, their wives, they pick up from uh, Ur, and they move up north to what city? You remember? Haran. Or Haran, whichever one you want to call it, doesn't matter. Um, but uh, they, they moved to, to Haran, and we, we, we talked about why. And it seems as though Terah is uh, into pagan worship of, of pagan gods. Uh, both the city of Ur and the city of Haran are famous for worship of the moon god, uh, Sin, ironically named. And uh, so they, they begin in Ur and then they move to, to Haran. We're going to talk a little bit more about why that is um, today. And so when, you, when, you, when we look at that, that, um, that culture, they, they, they're picking up from Ur, they're moving into to Haran, they're settling down in Haran until his father dies. I mean, this is, this is uh, thousands of miles apart, and so they're, they're finally settling down there. So if you look at uh, this map here, uh, you've got Ur down here by the Persian, by Persian Gulf, and then all the way up here is going to be Haran, right in this area. You see that? Everybody? Good? Up north, so Syria up north between the rivers. I'll work on getting a better pointer. How's this? I know, I've probably got it there somewhere. How's this? Can you see that? Yes. Okay, the Chaldeans are um, basically what eventually becomes the Babylonians. And so you'll, you'll hear Chaldea referred to, uh, you'll hear Babylon referred to as the Chaldeans really throughout Scripture, even when they're famously known as the Babylonians. So Chaldeans is just a set of people. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a, it's a people from a particular city okay. called Chaldea. And they, they start to grow in um, power, and they end up really becoming what amounts to the Babylonians um, that we know of in the Old Testament. So uh, you'll, hear, you'll hear them referred to as uh, Chaldeans, even in the prophets, when it's Babylon. We know it's Babylon, but they'll be called the Chaldeans. God will call them the Chaldeans. And uh, so um, it's, it's interesting that you end chapter 11 in Genesis with the Tower of Babylon, okay, where they, they're in Babylon, they build this tower, which is, we think, is a ziggurat, which is a temple uh, built to the, the, the gods, so to speak, and they're worshiping foreign gods, and God said, God's judgment to them is scattering them. We talked about this several weeks ago, or several months ago, and, um, and so you end there in Babylon with this Tower of Babel, and then where is Abraham called out of? Well, he's called out of Ur, which at the time is the, most, is the most powerful city in the Babylonian, what will eventually be the Babylonian Empire, and where a lot of uh, uh, Babylonians are, are, are settled. And you can even see here on the map, uh, Babylonia over here, uh, notated on the map for you. Yeah, look at that. Um, yeah, other questions like that, just from, from last week? All right. Um, now, let's, let's dig into what we're going to be talking about um, today. I, I want to 
just kind of put this out there for you. Some of you probably already have your head wrapped around this, but I kind of want to help us understand how we look at this this passage in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 9. And, and if you do have your Bibles, Genesis 12, 1 to 9 is where we're going to be for most of the evening. And the verses that I'm going to cite that are outside of that, I have on the, the packet. So you'll, you'll be, you'll be uh, able to read those. Um, God does not do anything by accident. Nothing by accident. And I know that we probably know that. Those are things that we know that are just part of our, uh, you know, growing up in a church or being a part of a church. You probably hear that phrase all the time. God does nothing by accident. Everything happens for a reason, that kind of thing. But one of the things that I'm struck by as I go through Abraham's story, particularly as we look at the historical and the theological setting that Abraham falls in, it just reemphasizes the point that God does nothing by accident. And some things that we're going to see, um, most of the things when it comes to the historical setting, particularly of the patriarchs. When I say patriarchs, well, who do I mean? Who am I talking about? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So particularly when it comes to the patriarchs and we look at the historical setting, most of the things are going to be we think this is what's going on at the time. We're pretty sure this is what's taking place. When it comes to dates, we're reasonably certain on this date. Or, so a lot of things aren't for sure, but we can surmise a lot by, by archaeology and writings and various other things that we've got. Um, you ha- here you have a man named Abraham whose name means exalted father. And he's likely born in the 2100s, and he's probably born in the year 2166. Now, tell me the irony of his name. He is childless, all right? Really, by the time he gets, we get into the throes of his story, he's like 75 years old. Um, at least by the time we start getting a lot of details on his life and wh- where he went and what he did, uh, he's in his 70s and he has no child, yet his name means exalted father. He was called exalted father. He was called Abram. I, I say in the, I think I say on the slide, Abraham, and I, sl- and I say on the note, on the packet, Abraham, that should be Abram, not Abraham. That's what means exalted father. Um, and so uh, that was a, just a mistake on my part. Um, but so uh, he, here you have this, this man who is called uh, sometime into adulthood, and yet from birth he's called exalted father. And that name uh, figures prominently in the story. It's a big twist of irony that just kind of goes throughout the entire story, right? And, um, and so here is God calling a man who means, whose name means exalted father, who is barren. And what is he going to tell him? You, you, yeah, you're going to be the father of nations. And, and here Abraham is going the whole, the whole way through, like, when, when is this going to happen? Because uh, Sarah is barren and, and there's, there's no kid coming. And so, so when is this going to happen? And so, um, but, but Abraham is likely born in the 2100s and he's, he's likely born in the year 2166. Now, if, you, if I were you, I would be asking, how do we know 2166? I mean, it doesn't say that anywhere, right? It doesn't say that. Well, we also know, let me say this too, by the way, we also know that he is a descendant of Shem. He is a descendant of Shem, where we get the term Semite, 
or Semitic people. They're descendants of, of Shem. And so we know that he is a descendant of Shem. Now, um, the, the date for his birth, how do we know that? Well, we are given some dates in Scripture, or at least dates that we can be reasonably certain about. One date that we actually get is the date Solomon laid the temple foundation, right? You remember this in, in I think it's 1 Kings 6.1, where uh, it says that Sol- Solomon, uh, the, the, the foundation was laid in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. So Solomon reigned from 970 to 931. And so we know then that the fourth year is going to be somewhere uh, between 967 and 966 is where it's going to start. And then he's going to build it, I think, for 13 years, if I remember right. And so that puts the Exodus in the year 1447 or 1446, somewhere in that time frame. Okay, so if... That is 1447 or 1446. That would, that would mean that, okay, so that's when they're, they're leaving Egypt. Well, that also lines up, that date, 1447, 1446, also lines up with something that Jephthah says in Judges 1126. Will somebody read that for us? It should be in your packet. Packet of verses. It's going to be the last page. Okay, um, so there, there's this. Do you remember Jephthah's story? Does anybody remember Jephthah's story in Judges? You're kind of, I mean, I, I know you bring up these random characters in the Old Testament, and you're like, and the proper answer is, well, I should, but I don't, you know, right? Um, and so there's a lot of these, but uh, remember Jephthah is like a, is a warrior, but he is a son of a prostitute, and his, da- his dad is apparently a philanderer, and, but then he has three natural children or several natural children, and the natural children don't like Jephthah because he's the son of a prostitute, and they, they send him out, but he's this mighty warrior. Well, then it turns out they need him to fight for, to fight for them, and so they bring him back, and they make him kind of the, the head of Gilead because he's a mighty warrior, and, and so he, he is at, he's asking, um, he's, he, as, as the leader of Gilead, he's going to the, the king of, of Am, uh, I think it's the Ammonites, and he, he tells them, the Ammonites want to want their property back. And Jephthah's like, what, what property? What are you talking about? And so he, they go all the way back to the Exodus. And when the children of Israel are wandering through the desert, and he says, you know, we didn't take your property back then. The guy fought us. We didn't take your property. Um, and the guy's like, well, no, I, I want it back. And he says, well, why didn't you do something about it 300 years ago when they were out there in the desert and you could have done something about it? Why didn't you do something then? Well, Jephthah's in about the year, sometime around the year 1100. This is before David steps on the throne. We're sure of that date. It's before Saul steps on the throne. This is in the era of the judges. So he's sitting in about the year 1100, somewhere around there. So 300 years would put him in the year 1400, right? So he's referring to the Exodus. That coincides with the laying of the temple. So we we think the date's right is, I guess, what that means, okay? Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Okay. Okay. I didn't ask if you agreed with it. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, so then next, we also know that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years 
preceding the Exodus. We're told that uh, on several occasions. We're told that in Exodus 12, uh, 40 and 41. Somebody read that for me. Okay, so we're, we're told they, li- they for sure lived in Egypt for 430 years. Some of that was going to be as a, as a slave. Some of that was going to be in freedom in the lands of Goshen. And, uh, but, they, but they lived in Egypt for 430 years. And then this also coincides with what God uh, tells Abraham, makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Somebody read that for me. Genesis 15, 13 should be the next verse. Yeah, so, so this is a promise that God makes to Abraham. Remember he, or when he, he, he looks at him and tells him, look, the land that you're in is going to be yours. It's going to be the land of your offspring. But not right now. It's going to be a, a little while from now. And there's multiple reasons why 400 years. And we're going to talk about that in, in, a, in a week or two, why God waits so long before he gives them the land. And it's actually a pretty powerful point that he tells to Abraham there in Genesis 15 that we'll talk about in a couple weeks. But basically, uh, he's going to wait for 400 years to give them the land. And that, that really coincides, it lines up really well with when they go down to Egypt. They're there for 430 years before they ever come back into where they, before they ever make it back into the land. All right. Now, not only that. But when they get down to Egypt, when Jacob enters Egypt, he, he makes the statement that he is 130 years old. Did I, I think I have the wrong one up there. There we go. Jacob uh, states to the, to, um, uh, when he gets down there that he is, a, is 130 years old. Now, I say probably there because he states something to the effect of the days of my wandering have been 130 years, and we take that to mean from birth, uh, but it, 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 he could have been a little bit older than that, maybe. It's possible. So again, the dates might be a little bit off, but they're not going to be too far. So um, he's 130 years old. So when you look at that, um, that makes his birth in 2006 B.C. All right, we're just adding up years, starting with what we know and working backwards. All right, uh, let's see here. Isaac uh, was 60, we know, when he fathered Jacob. So Jacob's 130 years. Isaac was 60 when he fathered uh, when he fathered Jacob. We also know Abraham was 100 when he fathered Isaac. And so this makes the date of Abraham's birth sometime near approximate to the year 2166. Track with me? Make sense? Do what? Makes make sense. Make sense to me, yeah. You take my word for it. <laughs> I hate math too, so I take other people's word for it. I take it that their math is correct. <laughs> I did have a calculator on my desk today, by the way, just making sure that some of the numbers were, were correct. But um, if, the, if there's something wrong, I guarantee you it's a typo. It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not the source, I'm sure. Um, all right. So now what we also know, so, so 
Abraham is looking at right about the year 2166. Now, the date's going to date's gonna matter a lot um, because it, tells, it might tell us a little bit about some of the things that are going on in Ur and Haran and the area at large around Abraham that starts to form the background of the story that we find Abraham in. So we're pretty sure, at least according to all biblical evidence that we've got, I don't know if it's going to the next slide here, there we go, that there's no biblical evidence that there are any believers at all in the time of Abraham. And so that may account for why God calls him out of Ur, which is a completely pagan nation, and calls him to Haran. Now, here's the thing, okay? We have a genealogy in Genesis uh, 10, 11, right around there, right? Especially in Genesis 11. We have a genealogy that takes us from Noah to Abraham, right? Remember this genealogy? So-and-so fathered so-and-so, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, so-and-so fathered so-and-so. Um, there's some debate about that genealogy. And we talked about this some months ago when we were looking at the age of creation and how we... Okay. Um, some people prefer to look at that list as a closed list. That there are only 10 generations between Noah and Abraham. Now, based on the years, one of the, one of the problems between, uh, with, with viewing that as a closed... Maybe not problem. I would just say one of the uh, eyebrow raisers, all right, <laughs> about, about looking at uh, that list as, just, as strictly closed is that it puts, um, it, it puts two people, two of, of Abraham's forefathers, including Shem... As his contemporaries, so that they're still alive when Abraham's alive, and that seems problematic. It may not be; it may not be a big deal at all, but it kind of seems like that. But when you factor that the, the list we get in Genesis chapter eleven is ten generations, and the list that we get in Genesis chapter five is ten generations, it seems like the author is actually doing something, and it's not uncommon for a Hebrew genealogy to say he fathered so-and-so. So John fathered Jack. But who he actually fathered was Jack's great-great-great-great-grandfather. And the reason we know this is because Matthew does it in the book of Matthew. <laughs> As he opens the genealogy, he says, look, there's 14 generations between Abraham and King David. There's 14 generations between David and the exile, and there's 14 generations between the exile and Jesus. But he leaves out three people that are in the New Testament. And he does it on purpose to make 14 generations. He's not concerned with giving you some facts back here in the Old Testament. He's making a point about the, the genealogy. And it's possible that that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 11. And that the, the, the dates are much further apart. And that also accounts for why we see that Abraham is, a, is in, the, in a ripe old age. Well, if he's in a ripe old age, his contemporary is like 400 and something years old. What makes 75 a ripe old age? <laughs> Nothing, right? Um, one of them will even outlive him. And that it just, it, you know, it seemed, it seemed to stretch beyond the, the bounds of what it seems like the biblical author is doing. So if that genealogy is closed, then what I'm saying up here isn't true, that there are probably some other believers around. But if the genealogy is open and that it's longer and that those forefathers of Abraham have long since died, then 
it seems to be true in the, in the biblical account that Abraham is a lot like Noah in that there's nobody else faithful around, and Abraham is the one that God has chosen uh, to do this with. David. Melchizedek. What about Melchizedek? We're not, in, we're not to Melchizedek yet. Yeah, but we're not to Melchizedek yet. <laughs> Look, when it comes to Melchizedek, we just there, there's there's that much we know. We just don't know much more beyond that. We don't know when he came on the scene. We don't know how long he'd been there. We don't know any of those things. And so, um, anyway, it seems as though Abraham is called uh, faithful in the midst of a pagan culture. There's virtually no one that we see in the biblical text at least, that would be calling on the name of the Lord at the time, much like we see in Noah's generation. Say again? Well, that's a million-dollar question. It depends on who you think he was, right? Um, so there's some people that think he was out in Edom. There's some people that think he was the king of Eden, Edom. Um, it just depends on who you think he was as to when he lived. So um, just not a, a whole bunch we know about that. So... Sorry. Um, all right. Um, now, again, like when I, when I say things like this and when I, when I present the genealogies as either open or closed, there are good people on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, that, that will hold to each position. And that's okay. Um, they're taking the biblical text seriously. They're just seeing what the author is doing with, that, with the words that he uses. Um, okay. So, but by all accounts, Abram is called... Uh, out of a out of a pagan culture, uh, and 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 really leaves all, all things behind. There, people are idolatrous. There, there's the predominant worship of the moon god. Here's my map, Shannon, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans all the way up to Haran. Now I see. I probably should have put that well, several slides before, uh, <laughs> but but I didn't. Okay. Um, so uh, not only that, we don't have enough information to tell exactly what year. Abraham leaves Ur for Haran. We don't know the exact year. We're not told. We can't even really surmise it. But we can probably get in the ballpark of when he leaves. And there's the, here's the reason. is because we know that um, he at least had to be old enough to have a family and be married and still young enough to be living under his father's um, headship, so to speak. Now, we do know that sometime in that the 2100s BC, the um, the Guti people move into the area around her and begin to take over, and it drives out a lot of people that are living in Ur at the time. But they're gone by 2100, so they're they're. Their time in there is really short-lived. And so, essentially, they're, they're by, by 2100, they're gone. Abram would have been 66 years old by the time they're, they're gone. Probably, Haran has either been dead or maybe he's toward the end of his life. We don't, we're not sure exactly when he died or exactly how, uh, when he died and then how long after that uh, Abram stayed around in Haran before he left if it was immediate or if there were some years in between, we're not sure. But, um, so, but 
The point is, they would have left because of the Guti people moving in, and they probably wouldn't have gone back, not knowing that the Guti people were going to be there for, you know, like the, the morning dew. Does that make sense? Okay, so that, that puts Abraham's birth and this event in, uh, in that, that time uh, pretty, or it makes sense, I guess, I guess you would say. They line up. Um, so the Guti people are gone, uh, they're overthrown by, by 2100, and they're, they're, they're out of there. And so that seems to give an account for what's happening in the biblical story. It seems that history is actually backing up what we find there if our dates are correct. Um, I had a professor, uh, a friend of mine, that, that used to say, um, archaeology is a friend of the Bible, that, that there's a lot of things that people kind of doubt about the, the words of Scripture, and then they go digging around, and then they're like, oh, oh well, it's right there, isn't it? That <laughs> is true. Um, so anyway, it's a it, it, friend of the Bible. So I, I think um, the historical picture that we're seeing around that time and around that place seems to line up with what we're finding in the scriptures as well. Um, now, one thing that's also really important is that the Amorite people had begun to, to spread through Mesopotamia and through Syria and down into Canaan. So the, the, the Amorites had, were kind of a, a merchant class, so they're selling things, and they're uh, a pretty wealthy class, and what they would be classified as what you'd say uh, semi-nomadic, meaning that they're not like shepherds, so they don't just go looking for greener pastures, they really go where the business is, where the people are. So they, they set up camp, they sell their wares until the business runs out, and then they move on. And so it, it seems as though Abram... If he's moving along at that time through that air, through the Mesopotamian region, then he's going along with sort of a migration that takes place of the Amorite people and is probably right there in the midst of the Amorite people. And it probably means that Abraham himself was a, was a merchant, that he made a lot of money through selling and, and things like this. We find that in the biblical text in Genesis where he is really wealthy. Uh, at, at one point, he is a small city uh, moving around the land of Canaan. Um, but there's some, there's some reasons why this is important. Um, Abram moves from Haran. His father dies in 2091, I think. We have, we have or he, sorry, he leaves Haran in 2091. We're not sure if that's uh, exactly when his, his dad died or not, but uh, he leaves Haran in 2091 and heads down to Canaan and this is probably part of the Amorite migration. The Amorites were not only pretty wealthy, but they were also pretty powerful. And what's going to happen is they're going to move down into Canaan, and they're going to cause some disruption in the midst of this um, migration. And so uh, it seems as though when Abraham moves with them, that not only is he a part of them, but if you think about his life, Growing up in the Amorite population, when by the time they get to Canaan, the Amorites are going to rule the day. Well, Abraham's been with them for some time. Uh, if the time is right, if the setting is right, Abram, no doubt, would have known the language of the land that, he, that God is calling him to. He would have known the people that God is calling him to. And what do we see in the biblical text? But that he's moving around that land, and, and people are... Uh, conversant with him. They're dealing with him. They are, in some cases, fearful of him, right? 
And so when, when Abram moves into the land, uh, he, he probably knows the people, the Amorites. And so the question then is, when you look at that kind of story here, he's called out of, out of Ur. Not only is his name significant, but then look at the people that God has him with along the way who are actually going to end up becoming the dominant force in the land that God is about to give to him and his, his ancestors, him and his progeny, I should say. Does that make sense? Questions about that? Yeah, we know who their people were. Do you know who their ancestor was? Remember? Who the Amorite's ancestor was? Lot's daughter. Yeah, they're Semitic people. Um, what's that? There's the Ammonites and the Amorites. Um, yeah, so there are, um, anyway, the, they end up, and actually, um, let me think about it for a second. King, Code, Hammurabi. Um, Hammurabi, because, I like having Blake here. He's my, like, when I can't remember a name, Blake, give it to me. Um, Hammurabi is going to be one of the early kind of Babylonian kings who's going to establish a, a, a law code that's going to be very similar to the Ten Commandments. We're going to see some of those relations later on. Um, Hammurabi is a descendant of the Amorites. So he is, they're going to end up becoming prominent. Some of their descendants are going to end up becoming prominent Babylonians. Um, most everybody becomes a Babylonian if they <laughs> but, but no, the point is, though, the Amorites are Semitic people, so their language is going to be very similar to Hebrew. They're going to have a, a, a similar uh, dialect and, and things like that. So uh, they're, they're sort of kinsmen, as it were. And so he, he, bring, he brings Abraham out of a, pay, uh, a pagan nation. He brings him through a people that are... Um, that, that are, are going to be very helpful for him when, when he gets into the land of Canaan and the Amorites are going to, in the end, be judged uh, very harshly by God himself. Go ahead. Yes. Let me, let me back up. We don't know a ton about them. Um, we know some things. We don't know a ton of historical things about them. We have a lot of writings of people referring to them by various names that are very similar to Amorites, but we don't know a ton about them. Um, and so, but um, we, we do know where they came from. We do know their, their ancestor. And we do know that the author of Genesis makes a point to point it out who their ancestor is. Um, also who the ancestor of, of uh, Canaan was, right? Uh, so we, we, we see all of those things, and he gives us reason to say, like, here's where these people came from, here's where these people came from. But that's, that's close to the extent of what we know about them. They're obviously Semitic. They're going to be very close. We know that we found some of their writings, so we know that it's very close to the Hebrew script. But beyond that, we don't know tons more. I'm sure somebody does. <laughs> anyway, any other questions like that? Go ahead, David. Is there from Lot's daughter uh, that occasion after this migration? Say it one more time. That occasion is. Lot's daughter. Yeah. 
Well, uh, we know that, you know, that's a good question. I got to think about that for a second. Go ahead, Blake. Yep. So you're looking at the earlier iterations of them. Um, and you find, too, a lot of times that a, a, a person ends up conquering a tribe, and they become that tribe. And so you'll see very frequently that that happens, I mean, throughout, throughout the land. Um, but he's right in that the author of Genesis is writing this much, much later and, and referring to them as the Amorites. But the probably Moabites East Esau. Uh, but, uh, oh, that's the Edomites. I'm sorry. After Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, the other sister. Lot wanted to go to the angels came and took him. Two angels, and he wanted to go to Zorah, but he yeah. went to a cave instead with right. his daughters. Yeah. After Sodom and Gomorrah, so right. that fits in the timeline. Right. Right. It, was that a question? I didn't know no, what the question. <laughs> yeah. So I would assume that that's probably what's going on in the text is that that he's referring to a group that became known as the Amor- Amorites from a person who ended up conquering that people. So where is the Amorites in that that story of the daughters having? Because I know one daughter had Mo- Moab, right? Right. Moabites. Ben- then it mentions the younger Ben Ami are the Ammonites. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I may be thinking of the Ammonites. I have that in there, but I may be thinking of the Ammonites now that I. That may be what I'm thinking of. Then I'm sorry. Yeah. That may be. That may be what I'm thinking of. There you go. Thank you, Vicky. Sorry. There you go. Back up. A few. We'll edit this out later. Go ahead. Just kidding. Yeah, it's, it's like 2,000 miles, I think it is, from Ur to Haran. A lot happens in that time period. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's move, let's move on. Um, all right. So one of the things that's obviously happening theologically in the story is that God is singling out Abram um, to exercise his faithfulness to humanity, and so we see we see this promise coming up in chapter twelve, verses one to three. We also see this in chapter in verse in verse seven of chapter twelve. What does he tell them? What does he tell Abram? No, in chapter in chapter twelve, uh, verse seven. What does he tell him? To your offspring. Hmm. To your offspring, I will give this land. Now go back to verse 3. What does he tell him in verse 3? So what he promises to Abram is that through you or in you, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. He tells him, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, who is his offspring? Jesus. <laughs> Stop it, Blake. Before we get there, who is his offspring? The Israelites, right? But something very interesting happens when we get into the New Testament, and especially when we get into the book of Galatians, and when we hear what Paul has to say about what this verse actually means. Paul says that what he's talking about is Jesus, not any other offspring, that the promises that were made to Abraham were made to Abraham and to Jesus. That he's, and the reason that, reasoning that Paul gives, somebody want to read that there in Galatians? Chapter 3, verse 16. Yeah. So Paul clarifies the interpretation of that message now in light of Jesus. And he says, the promise that was given to Abraham was about and to Jesus. That, will that blow your mind? That will blow your mind. Um, and and, it, and it, it twists all of us up as we read that. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, um, we could spend all day talking about on what, what that means for the Jews and, and that kind of thing. But I will tell you this. The rest of the book of Genesis is concerned with the election of that seed, who that seed is. The rest of the book of Genesis is concerned with the election, the selection of that seed. It becomes very significant that Jacob is chosen over Esau, that the older will serve the younger. That doesn't happen. That's unheard of. But God is coming in and he's saying, that kid, not that one. And why is that happening? Well, because Genesis is setting a rule that these are the people whom God chooses will bring forth the Messiah. And why, did, why does the whole book, why is the whole book geared toward that premise? Because of Genesis 3.15. There is a promise, there's a promise made at the beginning of the book in Genesis 3.15. Somebody read it for me. This promise that's made to Eve and to the serpent and to Adam, and as, as God is dealing out the punishment, he's talking directly to the serpent, and he says, uh, your, your offspring and her offspring will always be at war, uh, but one is coming, and he will, crush, he will crush your head or bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. And the New Testament is very clear that He's talking about Jesus, but we also see that the book of Genesis actually bears out that he's talking about the, the chosen seed, that the people reading Genesis is the first time they actually cracked the book open, are understanding that that verse in Genesis 3.15 is really important for the rest of the book. And so for the rest of the book, we start to see this seed being weeded out, that seed being weeded out. Well, here's some, uh, some, pro some products of, of, of Shem. Here, here's Lot and his, his children. Where did Lot go? When they choose the land, where does he go? Well, he goes out to the east. He doesn't want the promised land that God is going to give to his people. So Lot gets weeded out pretty quick. The people around Lot get weeded out pretty quick. His daughters get weeded out pretty quick. Uh, Ishmael gets weeded out pretty quick. There's a lot of people that get weeded out in the biblical narrative. And the reason is because Genesis is concerned with tracing the seed and helping you understand 
the rest of the Old Testament is about this. It's about that right there. Does that make sense? Yes. In fact, I think Genesis 3.15 is the foundation for the entire rest of the Old Testament, and obviously we'll find out very much part of the New Testament as well. But that's why the, the biblical authors, especially Matthew and Luke, in the beginnings of their gospel, they start with some genealogies, right? Because, well, here's the king. How, how does Genesis end? Do you remember how Genesis ends? Or close to how Genesis ends, the chapter 49. Remember as Jacob is um, blessing, Israel is blessing his children. Which one does Jesus come from? Judah. Judah. What does he say to Judah? Do you remember? Yeah, Genesis 49.10. Somebody read that. I, I don't have it in the packet, so you're going to have to flick open your Bible. Just get there, and I'll read it out loud. Yeah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh means tribute. So uh, could be Shiloh, could be tribute, until tribute comes. Um, but listen to that. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Promise to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who is in him that will bless all the nations? He's talking about Christ. Nobody knows that <laughs> throughout the entire Old Testament, or virtually nobody knows that until it's revealed in the New Testament exactly who this person is and when he's coming. But it's very clear that the Old Testament is brimming with the hope of Christ uh, coming even as far back as Genesis 3.15, even as far back as the promises made to Abraham. Um, now, so God makes this promise to Abraham, that, um, and he makes it in the, in the land of Canaan. So Abram has now left Haran, and he has moved down into the land of Canaan. And he is in Shechem when the Lord speaks to him again in verses 6 and 7. Somebody read that for me, chapter 12. 6 and 7. So here he is in Shechem. The Lord talks to him again. He builds an altar to the Lord in Shechem. Shechem's going to become, um, or at least we're going to see it again. Jacob is going to buy some land there in Shechem when he's done out there with his uncle. And uh, in, we see that in Genesis 33. Joshua is going to deliver his farewell address there in Shechem. Shechem becomes more or less a, a, a pretty powerful city. Um, Shechem is located here. I've got a picture of it. There's Shechem right there. So you've got, uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, there's Dothan, not Alabama, okay? I got my, my pointer? I have my pointer's gone. Okay, um, but there's Shechem right there in the middle, the Jordan River over here on the side uh, north. We've actually found 
um, just to kind of whet your appetite for Israel. We didn't go to Shechem. Did you go to Shechem when you went to Israel? We didn't either. But there is uh, a, an ancient fortified city. This is going to be probably about three to 400 years after uh, Abram. This is the, a fortified wall, a temple in Shechem that was built probably by the Amorites um, and potentially the Hyksos, which we're going to talk about later when we talk about Egypt. But um, so there's archaeological evidence of, of Shechem being a pretty powerful city uh, back then. So, but point is, God gives him this promise in Shechem. And then, um, so prior to Abraham's arrival in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites rule. Now, we don't know much about the Canaanites pre-Abraham. We don't know much about them at all. We know more about them later. But the point is, we, what we do know is they were prominent in the land. They had the rule of the roost until Abraham and his people get there. And when the Amorites come in, they push the Canaanites toward the Mediterranean Sea and toward the Jordan River. And so the Bible records, and you've got the verse there that I've listed. We won't read it, but the, the Bible records that they're sent to the, the, the coastal plain and to the Jordan River, pretty much. And that's where they're relegated. So the Amorites come in and push, push them out. And so now... Abram is settled in, in and amongst a community that he knows very well that's also very, it seems to be pretty, pretty powerful in the region. Um, and so then Abraham, uh, Abram, set, I have Abraham, but just every time I have it, just read Abram, settles in uh, somewhere in the Negev um, for an undisclosed amount of time. We don't know how long it is. It seems pretty short in the biblical text, but he's down in the Negev. The Negev is right here. So Shechem, Shechem was up here in the north, okay? Here's the Negev right down here. He's about to go to Egypt. That gives him quick access down there in the south. Um, so now the, the point of all of this, um, as, we, as we think about it and as we close, here we see Abram being called out of pagan culture, um, clearly for a reason. He's going to bring forth his offspring, are going to bring forth the Messiah. But it seems as though as you look at the historical setting around Abram as he's traveling, where he ends up, the people that end up around him, none of that seems by accident. It seems as though this is long since the plan. Um, imagine how many choices go into all of the things around Abram's life. Um, so then the question is, what about you? Are you the one? Are you the only one that God has forgotten, right? Sometimes I feel that way. I know that there's circumstances in my life that are troubling, and I have to think about, wait, is, is it, did God forget me? I mean, we felt like that on Monday night, didn't we? That, uh, perhaps he's not paying attention. Um, but there are circumstances that come now. <laughs> Get that paw out of here. Uh, <laughs> he's got socks on that are Clemson are. Um, but no, there are, there are certainly times, I think, in, in, in my life, I know, where I get frustrated and think um, of all the circumstances that are going on in my life. And if I stop and think, think about all the, the frustrating things that were there for Abram. Here, here, he's, he's named what he's named far before he ever knows anything about God. Okay? I mean... Somebody had to choose to name him that, right? And the Bible plays on that irony for a long time. 
the people that he's around, all, all of those sorts of things are, are incredible. But Abraham goes through some terrible things. He goes through some really frustrating things. Sometimes where he thinks he's, he's convinced he's going to die, and so he lies to get out of it. There's times where he's going to have to try to kill his own son. And a lot of the trials that he goes through, after God promises him, you're going to have a child, and, and then for a long time just delays that. And, but it's evident as we read the biblical text, as we'll see, that God's actually preparing him for what? To, to trust him. He's preparing him to trust him. Well, he's come out of a pagan culture. He knows gods. He knows a moon god who's got a temper and he has to, has to please. And so at any chance he gets, he's looking back to that god, I'm sure. It doesn't just disappear like that. And so God gets him into the land and, and tests him for a long time until he trusts him enough to take his son up to a hill to kill him. There's a lot that goes on in our lives and it, it seems as though God does the same thing over and over and over again. He tests until we trust. That's what he's doing through trial. Our dependence increases, is placed on him, and that's the goal, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for an opportunity to just look deeply at scriptures and um, think about the events that are going on and the way that your hand has moved through time in and through the lives of people to accomplish your purpose. And we know that none of this is by accident. We're not here in this church by accident. So, Lord, I pray that through all of this, we learn to grow in dependence on you in everything, in everything we do, that you may be glorified and that the peoples may come to see your son as the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.